Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Bhutang tamang sankhang namasami One of my favorite uh, little verses in the uh, Pitaka is from one of the bhikkhunis, Sister Wajira, who when she was approached by Mara, uh, who asked her who was this, this being, this sata, she replied, there's no sata to be found in here. It is just purely a heap of sankaras purely just sankaras, nothing else. And that uh, all there is is dukkha arising, dukkha uh, passing away. I think the verse is something like dukkha me wahi samboti, dukkha titati vaiticha, nanyatra dukkha samboti, nanya dukkha Nirujati, nothing but dukkha arising, dukkha persisting and dukkha fading away. Only dukkha which arises, nothing other than dukkha which fades away. And these are the words of an arahat, someone who had penetrated to the truth. But uh, those stanzas, just the way to regard uh, the world, the body, the mind, all phenomena in that those terms is not just an expression of the Dhamma, of the Amata Dhamma. It's also a very beautiful means for developing the peaceful states of mind, a very beautiful means of developing the tranquility of the jitta and the uh, the seclusion of the jitta. In the talk which I gave some weeks ago about the asavas, where I described the asavas, these things we call taints, as outflowings of the mind. As the, the mind is going away from its home, from its abiding, out into the world, out into the world of forms, out into the world of sounds, especially out into the world of thoughts and plans and dreams and concerns, out into the past and back into the future. All of these journeyings I call the, the work of the asavas, the going out into the world. And why does it do that? Why is this mind just so hard to control? Why is it that when you sit in meditation it's difficult to calm the mind down, just to watch the breath, to let go of the world. And the answer, of course, is because there is still not that penetration with full wisdom, that all that 
is just nothing but dukkha arising, dukkha persisting, and dukkha fading away. If you could really see it, there's just that, just dukkha arising, persisting, and fading away. If you really saw it, and not just through thought, not just through your intellectual capability, but deep through insight, through penetrating powerful insight, if that's what you really saw, would you take up that which is dukkha? Would you be concerned with it? Would you follow it? Would you tolerate it? And I say that would you do this, I should really say, would the mind tolerate this? If you could only just see the amount of dukkha that is in just these ordinary phenomena, then the mind would disassociate with it. The mind would let it go. It would not follow after these things. It is because of this that if one could uh, develop the dukkha sanya to that degree, then you'd find the mind will very easily go into samadhi, very easily go into the deep concentration states. It would not go into those concentration states propelled by your desire to achieve and to gain this state or that state. The mind would enter these states because these states, as I wrote in one of those newsletter articles some time ago, these states are nothing else than states of letting go, states of abandoning. Because when the mind gets liberated, these are the, just the natural abidings of the mind, of the jitta. It's only because the jitta just carries these burdens which has got nothing to do with the jitta. It's just a foolish mind, a mind which is covered over with stupidity. But it takes up these burdens which don't belong to it anyway. It takes up these thoughts, these ideas, these plans, dreams of the past and the future, concerns which have nothing to do with it. Takes these things up and bothers itself, and thereby just closes off the door for these beautiful abidings, which are not just abidings in happiness, but abidings in the realization of some of the fruits of letting go, some of the fruits of freedom. A mind which is freed from the external world is a mind which experiences the blisses of jhanas. When it feels the nibbida towards the outside world, when it realizes that this is just dukkha arising, dukkha passing away, no matter what form that outside world appears like, whether it's like a beautiful afternoon, a beautiful meal, whether it's going here and going there, whatever you're concerned with, with the outside world, even reading books and discussing the Dharma, all that is, is just dukkha arising and dukkha passing away. If you could only realize that, then you throw away all of these concerns. You'd liberate the mind from all this extra burden which it doesn't need. And the mind, instead of leaning outwards towards the world to discursive things, to papancha, it would lean the other way 
to lean towards giving up, abandoning, letting go that which it sees very clearly as nothing more than dukkha arising, dukkha passing away. All of the thoughts, the ideas, the brilliant ones and the stupid ones you've had since you were born, what use are they? What's their purpose? Is it nothing more than just dukkha arising and dukkha passing away? All of your great insights, all of your great knowledge, just dukkha arising, dukkha passing away. All of your desires for sensual enjoyment and gratification and pleasure. Can you not just see that as just dukkha, dukkha arising, persisting and passing away? Isn't that enough to get some sense of distaste towards that world which can never offer you anything other than dukkha arising and dukkha passing away? It's one of the other sayings which I, I wrote down some time ago which just comes to my mind now it says the what in the world is called sukha the area is called dukkha what in the world is called dukkha the area is called sukha in the world that what one thinks is there's happiness there's pleasure fulfillment for those who know the Dhamma who see the Dhamma who live the Dhamma that is just nothing but dukkha arising and dukkha passing away. All the joys in the world, whether it's seeing movies, whether it's reading books, even like a beautiful afternoon in a monastery, seeing the little kangaroos bouncing around, seeing the flowers, the beautiful clouds in the trees, uh, in the sky. You can look at that as dukkha arising and dukkha passing away your mind will become cool towards all of those things. It will turn away from distraction. Because how much has distraction just bothered you, especially in your pursuit of the quiet, peaceful states of mind? There's no end to these distractions if one cannot see them as, as dukkha. One does need an insight which is all-encompassing which gets to the root of these things which distract us away from our goal. And the idea of dukkha, suffering, is just so important to develop. Every step you make on your walking meditation path, as your foot rises, that's dukkha rising. As it moves forward, that's dukkha persisting. As the step ends, it's just one dukkha ending. Another one is just waiting to come up. Even the beautiful is dukkha. How much more so the painful. If you also realize the painful, the stomach aches, the back aches, the hip aches, everything else, your disappointments and frustrations, what else do you expect? It's just dukkha arising, persisting and passing away. If you realize you will never be free from these disturbances of, of the body by just trying to manipulate the world outside, if you think that's the way to escape from suffering, then you're just rolling around in circles. You'll find you'll never end the problem that way. 
when you realize that even the painful experiences, the body, the disappointments, the frustrations, dukkha rising, dukkha passing away, you cannot escape from it that way. Again, you just develop a sense of nibbida towards this body. This is the nature of the body, to hurt, to ache. You try and fix it up, and it's endless. You discard the body, and just go into the mind. And there, the problem is ending. Remember, Ajahn Chah always used to say to the monks, if you come here to die, you come here to die. You have to die to the world, you have to die to the body. You have to be willing to just give up all concern for this body. Think of it as dead tonight. So if you think of it as dead, it doesn't really matter if it does die. You can just practice letting go of the body. Any aches, pains, disagreeable feelings in the body which come up, just turn away from them. You realize it's the nature of the body, just the body doing its thing. The only way to be free is by turning away and going into the mind. If the mind really knows that this body is just full of suffering, right now it's full of suffering, you realize it cannot solve the problem, it will let go. I think I've mentioned to many people this, some of the experiences you have in meditation, just when you get extreme pain. It's unfortunate that we're now living in a comfortable country where there are things like doctors, there are comfortable cooties, there's a heater behind me to keep the cold off. Sometimes you wonder that this, this is the abbot's proliferation, <coughs> whether the monastery is too comfortable, whether we should just turn off the electricity, whether we should just uh, sell the car, whether we should just uh, <coughs> only allow one lay, one car, one lay people's car into the monastery every day instead of having heaps of food. Sometimes <coughs> when you look back to how Ajahn Chah used to run his monasteries, he used to keep it tough and spartan in the early days. He used to do that for a reason. The reason was that the monks were willing to die. They were willing to give up their bodies. As uh, it says in the Gosinga Sutta, Mahagosinga Sutta, remember that beautiful Sutta where all the great monks on a full moon night in the Gosinga wood were discussing what monk would illuminate this forest. And at the end they asked the Buddha, what monk would illumine this forest? And uh, the Buddha said, the monk who sits cross-legged, if I got this right, and determines that he will not break the sitting posture until his mind is released, or her mind is released, from the asawas, from the taints. It's willing to die for the Dhamma. Willing to die for the Dhamma is not sort of tolerating just this 
body which is always demanding so much attention realizing that this is just craving this is just papancha as a young monk, I'm not just speaking out of theory as a young monk you do do this, as an old monk I do this as you don't sort of give in to the pains and aches of the body and to the, the papancha which comes along with that been, you know, all know that uh, a couple of years ago I injured my back quite severely. That back pain is still there. And some t- days during the retreat period, I've been sitting late into the night, and the back pain has been very difficult to bear. Sometimes I've moved, and then afterwards the back pain is still there. The best times is when I just so what? And just left it alone and just developed the peaceful abidings. And it's amazing just what happens when you call the bluff of the body. When you don't follow its uh, silly advice. Then you can still sit late into the night with no pain. This body is really weird and strange. Sometimes what you think of as pain is just mala, the deluder, it's distraction, it's the mind going out into the body, disturbing it. It's not true pain. To be willing to die means being willing to just to see what happens. Earlier on in the year, we read out the biography of Ajahn Chah where in those days he was much more fortunate than we were because there was hardly any support sitting in forests where there wasn't anyone to call when he got sick he just sat there sat there see if the sickness would heal or whether he would die and that's why he became a great monk so if you're willing if you're willing to go for enlightenment, if you're willing to develop the mind, if you're willing to develop the peaceful states, you have to be willing to die to the body. You have to be willing to die to the concerns of the body, willing to die to your family, willing to just die to your lust, to your anger, to give up all of these things. That willingness to die is perhaps the first thing. And again, the second thing is finding the means to be able to do this. As I started off in this talk, by developing the fact that this is dukkha, it has to be this way, there's no escape from it. So leave it alone. Let the body go according to the nature of the body. Let the mind disassociate from it. So the mind realizes this dukkha arising and passing away. When the mind doesn't try and change it, doesn't try and escape from it, doesn't try and do anything with it, then things start to get peaceful. The jitta, when it realizes that it's got no business in there, out there in the world, the jitta realizes it's wasting its time. It's futile trying to patch up this monastery, trying to patch up this world, trying to patch up your family, trying to patch up 
anything and you realize that it's so futile this is called Nibbida the mind just turns away if it truly is insight which is arising of Nibbida remember in that sequence which the Buddha said over and over again that the result of seeing things as they truly are what is called yatabhuta yana dasana the result, the consequence of seeing things as they truly are is the arising of Nibbida what the Buddha meant seeing things as they truly are is seeing things as just dukkha arising and dukkha passing away the words of Vajira, the Arahat and if we could actually see just dukkha arising and dukkha passing away then we would just let go Nibbida would come in again in the practice of meditation I've mentioned this over and over again that meditation is a natural process the sooner you get out of the way and let it happen the better it's not you who lets go please understand that point because it's vital if you try and let go you are just manipulating again you're just trying to control letting go has to come from another source it's wisdom which lets go it's seeing things as they truly are which lets go and if seeing things as they truly are doesn't result in peaceful states of mind it's not true insight it's just scratching at the surface if it really is insight it lets go it develops Nibbida, it develops Viraga let's see the natural result of these things so if you develop that wisdom in your meditation you find that you don't have to do the meditation you just sit there and watch the mind disengages by itself as it looks out into the world and sees it's just dukkha rising and passing away it just develops disgust towards that and it just stops if you look at thinking and if you see it clearly it's just dukkha arising and dukkha passing away just the mind, there's something inside develops disgust and it stops your concern about the past and the future about things outside if you could see it, penetrate it fully they would just stop it's just the nature of things and the mind would start to become quiet breath going in, breath going out just dukkha rising, dukkha passing away the mind would soon get bored with that too and just let it go nimittas just dukkha arising, dukkha passing away the coarser nimittas which arise at first would be abandoned for the more fine nimittas which come behind it the mind is just set on letting go realizing there's nothing which is worth holding on to 
nothing which is worth valuing, nothing which is worth taking up in the world. He lets go. When the mind starts to let go, it experiences the bliss of letting go. All the different beautiful blisses of letting go. And you start to realize some of the fruits of the holy life. Some of the benefits which arise through seeing things clearly as they truly are. It gives you confidence in faith that you have actually got some insight. It's not insight because you can argue with others and prove your point, but insight because it gives you tranquility, both bodily and mental, and because it gives you bliss the bliss of freedom, of knowing a mind which is liberated from these things. But always, the Buddha said that Nibbāna Paramahamsukhaṁ, Nibbāna is the highest sukha, the highest happiness. This is the bliss, just flicking through the Majjhima I forget which sutra it is now, some time ago. I just uh, recalled, uh, I think it was even, I think Ajahn Jayasara, who just mentioned years ago, he said, that's really strange, you know, in the suttas, that uh, you see there the bhikkhus in the time of the Buddha, they would smile, they would look happy, they'd be cheerful, and they wouldn't be thin and wretched looking. I remember reading that uh, some time ago, and it's actually true. This, this, I think some king or other, King Prasenadi or probably I think it was, was went to the monastery and just saw all the monks, just happy, smiling, not fat, not thin, but just comfortable. And his comment, if I recall, it was that this uh, shows that these monks are probably gaining some Uttri Manusadhamma, some of these attainments on the path. Even like the king realized that this is the result of the holy life. He said, I think in the sutta, the king Pasandi said, when I go to these other sects, they're all thin and wretched looking. And uh, I think that, you know, whatever they say about any sickness or whatever, I think it's probably because they're not practicing. They're not realizing anything. They're not realizing freedom from suffering. The result of realizing that it's nothing but dukkha arising and dukkha passing away. It's just happiness. A happiness of liberation, of freedom. As one develops the perception of suffering, I don't mean like the coarse suffering, I'm talking about the refined suffering now the sabbe sankara dukkha type of suffering, that all sankaras, all conditioned things are suffering, the dukkha. We were just chanted a few minutes ago, that all rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara, all vinyana, all of these five khandhas, past, present and future, refined, coarse, 
far and near, wherever they may be, whatever they are, all of them, without exception, impermanent, subject to change, therefore dukkha, not to be taken as mine, me or myself. Sometimes when we try and perceive anatta, not self, we forget about the mine. And it's all right to say this isn't me. But remember that these aren't yours. You have no business with these things. The mind has no business with the five candors. I'm not saying the mind is anything other than the five candors. It's just uh, a good way of looking at it. Because the five candors have got nothing to do with themselves, basically. If you could only regard it in this way, the five candles would start to slow down, would start to stop. That interest which you have in these things is called craving, upadana, taking things up. You give up that craving, that interest, that concern in these things. Through, again, not you giving up the craving, wisdom giving up the craving, through seeing these things as dukkha. If you saw these things as dukkha, where would there be the, these things of mine? Who would want to own dukkha? Who would want to go and possess dukkha, crave it, try and get hold of it, try and keep it, search for it, spend all this time just trying to amass more and more dukkha? It's only because you see it as something other than dukkha that you spend so much time, you waste so much time. How much time have you wasted already in this retreat, in this life, searching for things which are only dukkha? You put all those things away through realization that these things are nothing but dukkha arising and passing away. And all this searching starts to end. On all this idea of mine, this is mine, this belongs to me. This is my concern, this is my right, starts to disappear. All your possessions in your hut, never think of them as yours. Even the bowl and robe, think of them as belonging to the Buddha, not to you. If you think of it in that way, you'll wear your robe as if you've been borrowing it from the the Blessed One Himself. You'll be looking after it, caring for it, wearing it properly. You'd reflect that here I am wearing the Buddha's robe, do I deserve such a thing? Look upon your bowl as being belonging to the Buddha, what you put inside of it and how you eat that. If you were eating from the Buddha's bowl, then you'd eat with much more mindfulness, much more care, and less greed. Look upon these things not as belonging to you, but belonging to the Buddha. Look upon the huts which you stay in not as belonging to you, but belonging to the Arya Sangha, a group of noble ones. If you're already an Aryan, then okay, you have some rights to those huts. 
If you're not yet, then what right do you have to live here? You look upon it as belonging to the Arya Sangha. There's been times when, I remember once when I was staying with uh, Tanjef, when we were working on the vineyard book together, because I was senior to him in Rains, and the only accommodation in his monastery was uh, Lumpur Fung's Kuti, Ajahn Fung's Kuti, supposed to be an Arahat. And he put me in that hut. It's quite something actually to stay in a, in a hut which once belonged to an Arahat. Your meditation is very good. Your sense of restraint increases enormously when you think who's stayed in this hut. Look upon your hut as belonging to Aryans, not belonging to you. And then you might have more energy, more restraint, more power in your meditation. Look upon your body as belonging to nature. Nature's concern to heal it or to take care of any sickness or just to allow it to die. It's not my concern. Whenever nature calls in my body, it can. I'm not going to fight. The purpose of this body, body is to use it to develop the dumb, develop insight, understanding into the Dhamma, to develop freedom. What else were you born for? What other use is there for this body? And if you sacrifice this body for the sake of the Dhamma, then you've used this body correctly. You don't gain any great attainment this lifetime. You're creating the conditions to create those attainments in the, ne in the next or subsequent ones. This is sort of what it takes. So you don't own any of these things all of your great ideas, all the things you've memorized and learnt and you feel very clever about or sometimes stupid about, they're not yours either. Don't ever just measure your knowledge against other people's. This is not yours, it doesn't belong to you. You see it as dukkha, it's very easy to see it as not belonging to you. No one wants to own dukkha, we always want to give it away. See it as dukkha, and then you find you have less possessions. All of your concerns in the mind, nothing to do with you. Give it all away. Seeing things as not mine is the way to end craving. Seeing things as not-self is the way to gain stream-entry. Seeing things as not-mine is the way to get anagami, pala. So you don't own anything in this world. Sometimes other people object, saying, well, what is there? What is there? When everyone says there's not a self in there, there's something in there. There's experience, there's feeling, there's consciousness. What is consciousness? 
Look at consciousness. Look at this process. Look at the sankharas. Look at perception. Just how uncertain it is. Look at Vedana. Look at the body. Look at all these five candors. When the time comes that you can see these five candors, there's just dukkha arising and dukkha passing away in every moment. Then you'll really be seeing them as they truly are. All of the candors. This includes the mind as well. The chitta is just dukkha arising, dukkha passing away. Nothing other than that. If you'd only just see that, then you'd leave the whole world, the world inside, the world outside, all the three lokas, the karma loka, the world of the five senses, the bhava loka, uh, sorry, the rupa loka and the arupa loka, the world of the form jhanas and the formless jhanas, all of those worlds, you live completely alone. You'd be free. You see, it's just dukkha arising, dukkha passing away. The person who sees that, who sees that in every moment, is called the arahat, like Wajira. What's it like to be an arahat? That's the clearest and most beautiful description you could find in the whole of the Sutta Pitaka. One who sees in that way at the time of their death, when the body disintegrates, seeing the dukkha arising, dukkha has persisted, dukkha has passed away. What is there to be taken up for a future existence? What cause could there ever be for a continuation of the round? The root has been taken up and destroyed. The illusion that somewhere there can be any sukha, something really worthwhile in samsara to hold on to, to nurture, to value. You can only just see it's all dukkha arising, persisting. Just this, right now, this experience, whatever it is, dukkha arising, persisting, passing away. And the thing would stop. Rupa would end, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vinyana. The chitta would end. And with it, all the suffering, all the running around, all the problems, is the end of suffering and seeing there's nothing but suffering the process ends because there's no cause left for continuation so that's all I can offer for this evening has anyone got any comments or questions they'd like to say or bring up
Yeah. Uh-huh.